Jesus, we thank you for another day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your word, Lord, to study your word and to uh, be molded and shaped by it. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be pliable tonight, God, uh, through the, the outpouring of your spirit, Lord, that the, the hard places would become soft again. Lord, with all of our lives, we want to glorify you in every relationship and in every situation, God. We want to make the right decision, and that the right decision is what would bless your name and what would be honoring of you, God. And so we thank you for Paul's practicality. We thank you, Lord, for his honesty, and uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, his word to us. We pray that uh, you would speak to us through it. Lord, I do pray and ask that you would help me rightly divide your word again, that uh, I wouldn't lead anybody astray, Lord. We give you this time as an offering of praise in Jesus. Amen. Amen. So yeah, we've been re- we've been studying through 1 Corinthians for a little while now. We're kind of getting into the meat of the letter. Paul was writing to correct issues that the Corinthian church was having. Remember, the first four chapters were correcting their thoughts. They had essentially welcomed the culture into their church rather than standing for Christ and being countercultural. Um, and, and honoring God, they, they welcomed in some wrong thinking and some wrong theology and some wrong doctrine. And essentially the idea was, Paul was saying, what do you, I gave you the foundation of the cross of Jesus Christ. I preached him and nothing else, Christ and him crucified. And so he said, what are you going to build on with that? What type of material are you going to build on the foundation? And he gave you the choice to build on with, with, gold and silver and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, reminding us that everything that we build on that foundation of Christ will eventually pass through the fire, pass through a judgment, and those of wood and hay and stubble will be burned up and of of no value to us on the other side of that judgment. Those things made of gold and silver and precious stone, those things will stand the test of time and last for eternity. So what are those things of gold and silver and, and precious stones? Well, it's, it's the foundations of God's Word. It's prayer. It's praise. It's those things that are centered on Christ rather than pulling and drawing things from the culture to build our church. And so uh, he's correcting their wrong thinking, and then he started correcting their wrong actions. And we've dealt with some doozies of some things, um, men taking their stepmoms and as as wives or not even wives but just wrong relationships and and some ugly things and 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 then the church being proud of their tolerance factor uh hey look at how we endure and and uh, support those in sin rather than correcting them and so now as we get to chapter seven we we kind of take a turn not so much a, a grand turn, but just a slight turn from where he was. He's still correcting and he's still instructing. But now as we get into chapter 7 and really chapter 7 all the way through to chapter 14, what Paul is doing is answering questions. Evidently, the Corinthian church had written to him because maybe they were confused on some of these issues and had asked him a list of questions. And so he deals with those questions as we go through 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, and, and, and tries to set them straight. And so they are more, 
these chapters would be more practical, more pragmatic. How do you do this? What, should we do this? Should we not do this? What does it mean when this happens? And, and answering those types of questions. And the first, very first one he deals with is, is a, a, a subject that we, we as a, a church family have to deal with, and that's marriage, but more specifically, the sexual relationship within a marriage um, initially in this chapter, and then and then it even turns toward is it better to be married or or not to be married when it comes to serving Christ, and and so he deals with these things. So here we go. We ready? Did we pray? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm not trying to embarrass her, nor am I trying to be embarrassed. We'll just, we'll just go through it. 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, see, he's saying, I'm answering these questions. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So what Paul is addressing here is evidently they had asked him a question about marriage and then the sexual relationship inside of a marriage, and, and he, he's beginning to quantify it. And as we go through, we will we'll break it down a little bit. But what I want to say on the onset is what Paul's driving at is that purity is the goal. Purity is the goal. Whether you're single or you're married, for both instances, purity is the goal. And that's what he's driving at. That's accomplished in two ways. For those that are single, purity is, is acted out or is lived out in chastity. It's in refraining from sexual relations. If you are married... It is purity is acted out or, or lived out in faithfulness to your spouse, in faithfulness in marriage. And so the goal is the same, whether married or single, to be pure. The, the way that comes about happens two different ways, either be by being chaste or by being faithful. And so as we get into this, we don't have the questions that the Corinthian church asked Paul. They had written him a letter. We don't know what they are. We don't know what the specific thinking was behind what they're asking here about marriage. Is it better to be married or is it better to be single? Is it What about sexual relationships inside of a marriage? Is that okay or should we refrain from those things? We, we're not exactly sure what Paul's, their, their, their question to Paul was. But if I had to guess, just by, based on the chapter, this is what I'm thinking. I think it would go something like this. Their question might have been, Paul, you're single. We, you, you came and you taught us for 18 months and you don't have a spouse, you, you're single. So, should we give up our marriages for the sake of holiness? I, I think it might have something to do go like that. And probably what may have spurred this thinking along was, We've talked about this as we've gone through the Pauline epistles. This false teaching called Gnosticism had um, arisen in the cultures there, uh, uh, fo basically following Paul on his missionary journeys. 
And the Gnostics would teach that anything in the physical is evil. Anything in the physical is evil. And so if, if you were to believe that, then as you look at sexual relations, you could view that in two ways. One, you could say, well, if everything is e- evil, then I'm not going to have sex ever again, and I'm not going to deal with that. I'm just going to step away from all of that, and we're just going to avoid all that in a, in a strive for holiness. Or you could say, if it's all evil because it's physical, what difference does it make whether I remain faithful to my wife or not? Because it's all evil, so I'm just going to indulge in everything. Both thinkings, both, both thoughts coming from Gnosticism are wrong. God has a purpose and a plan for the sexual encounter, the sexual relationship within the confines of biblical marriage. And so sex is a good thing as long as it's obeyed by the rules. And so, but I, I kind of think that's where Paul, at least maybe that's the question. They're looking at Paul's life. Hey, you're single. Is that what we should be striving for? Is that where we're going? He he mentions um, in, in this letter, and I'm trying to think of, of how we know that he's single, because he mentions, in, as we gonna, are going to read on, that he says, um, it, it would be better if you were, were as I were, without a spouse. But what's interesting is Paul probably has both sides of the coin, because yes, he was single while he came through Corinth, but at one time he was married. We're, we're pretty confident of that because we know that, or we firmly believe that he was part of the Sanhedrin. And part, that's one of the, the ruling governing bodies uh, in, the, in, the, in Israel, in the culture of the Jews. And in order to be in the Sanhedrin, and we, we think that he was in the Sanhedrin because it says as, he was, as they were killing Christians that he casted their, his vote against them. And so that's why we think he was in the Sanhedrin. In order to be in the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. Not only that, the, the Jewish culture would say that if you weren't married by the age of 20, if a man were not married by the age of 20, he was in sin. And so marriage was strongly emphasized in the Jewish culture. And so we, we are fairly confident that Paul was married at one point in his life. Yes, I know that sounds young, but that's, you know, that, that was the culture then. It's, it's certainly different now. Although I think in a lot of ways, if people got married earlier, it might save a lot of trouble. That's my opinion. That's not the, the Lord. <laughs> Paul says that a couple times here. But um, um, So Paul probably has both sides of the coin. What happened to Paul's wife? Don't know. Not for sure. Some would say that she must have died somewhere along the way, and so he was a, a widower. Some say that um, when he converted to Christianity because she was... Uh, in in uh, an elevated position there in the Jewish culture, she just left him, and so not not exactly sure what happened. But at this point, he is phys- uh, single, and so he he kind of knows what's both going on. Okay, so that's that's kind of where I think he's coming from, or this is the the question he's answering, and he says because of sexual immorality, there in verse two, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband, and that is in a physical way. Verse 3, important verse for us. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, 
and likewise also the wife to her husband. So before we start talking about the the deed of sexual intercourse, Paul addresses something and he says, hey, before we go there, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about affection. And he says, both parties inside of a, a biblical marriage are due affection. And so husbands, good that he starts with the husbands because generally husbands aren't interested in affection. But it says, speaks to us men, hey, your wife needs affection. She needs attention. She needs being cared for. She needs being uh, paid attention to. You aren't just the money maker. You aren't just the, the breadwinner. You aren't just the strong back and the weak mind. You are the, the leader of your household, and you need to be engaged with your wife. Men, you've done it before. If you aren't doing it now with your spouse, you've done it before. Otherwise, you wouldn't be married to her. You, you know how to show, we know how to show affection. We know how because we do it when we're dating. But once we catch her, well, then we don't have to show affection so much. And that's not the case at all. Paul's saying within the confines and the, and the, the arrangement of biblical marriage, you are to render the attention due your wife. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. It is a reciprocal, mutual benefit and agreement that, that you are to both render one another affection. And so part of that is knowing how to affect your spouse. How, how do you show affection? What I said it when we went through Ephesians. As you as you are married for however many years or what have you, what you're to continue dating. Continue to know your spouse. Continue to know their interests. Continue to know what kind of music do they like? What kind of flowers do they like? Do they like flowers? Are they allergic to flowers? Don't buy the ones that they're allergic to. That kind of thing. Chocolate is always good. Even when it's bad, it's good. Okay. <laughs> it can be bad. <laughs> a guy would think so, evidently, but not a, a lady. Then that's fine. But we are to, to know what affects our wives. And I, I heard this, I forget, years ago, um, knowing, well, just we need to know how much affection is effective. You've heard the statement, <coughs> men are microwaves and women are crockpots, right? That's that. So how much affection does it take for a guy? Not a whole lot, because we're microwaves. But women are crockpots. It takes all day to cook. And, okay? I told you, I'm sorry, we're getting into the, That's what this chapter is. And so we're getting practical. Shall we move on? There's more. So we are to render affection. And, and one thing I do want to point out is affection is more than physical. I want to make sure we understand that. 
Affection is emotional. Affection is spiritual. And we need to meet one another on all three of those planes and all three of those areas. Make sure that we're washing our wives with the word. Make sure that we are praying for one another. Make sure that we um, are, are meeting each other's needs emotionally. We, um, as Michelle and I are walking through this adoption and um, the, the struggles that we're having. I don't know if you guys heard, we took a step backwards this week rather than taking a step forward. The paper that we thought we had um, turned out the person lied that they had delivered it. And so we don't have the paper we thought we had. And so we're actually further back than we were on Sunday when we asked you to pray. And so that's hard when you get that news. And, and, and part of my affection for my wife and part of hers for me is that we call one another and we talk and we cry and we, and we, you know, and I make sure that when I get home from work, that work stays outside. And that when I'm home, I'm engaged with my family. I'm engaged with my wife to say, you know, let's, let's look at each other. Let's talk to one another. And that's, that's what we need to do. So we need to meet each other's needs you know, of affection, both physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. Okay. Now verse four. Gentlemen, this is not leverage, nor is it for you ladies. <laughs> the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Good practicality there. <laughs> People have heard the joke before. What that means is that ladies, you're, you're, you don't have, you know, your own body is not your own, it's for your husband. And so what men want most is sex. And then, gentlemen, your body's not your own. What the women want is for you to take out the trash. <laughs> so you go do that. <laughs> That's not what he's saying here. <laughs> you don't have... What is it? What, is he, what exactly is he saying? You don't have authority over your own body. Here's, here's what I think. Remember what he said at the end of the last chapter. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Okay? You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I think that's at the end of verse or chapter 6. And so he now says, in the confines of marriage, remember that. Remember that you're honoring God. Remember that you're glorifying God. Remember that your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. And part of the price within the confines of marriage is offering your body as, or, or as a gift to your spouse. As we talked about time and time again, and I'll, I'll keep saying it till the end of time, the way we define love, the word love, is being others centered. That means we care more about, when we love somebody, we care more about them than we care about ourselves. And so as we are in uh, the, the holy state of biblical marriage, then we can say, I love my spouse more than myself. Therefore, I will offer myself, all of myself, but even my body, to that person's, to my spouse's needs. 
We are to be other-centered in our marriage. We are to share our bodies. Speaking of the act of sex, he says in verse 5, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come back together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So God has given us a gift in the union of marriage, and that is sex. And so what we don't want to do in, in, in that relationship is use that gift as leverage over one another. It says don't deprive. Don't deprive. Don't use that as a, as a method of gaining what you want. Don't use it as leverage to, to, to hold back your affection for your spouse so that you can have the upper hand except for one area, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, I know what this does. As we talk about this, and it says, don't deprive your spouse, the, the gift of sex, the, the question that comes to probably every guy's mind in the room, but maybe a lot of women as well, is, is then, all right, quantify it. What, what are you talking about? How often are we supposed to have sex? if we're not depriving one another? How often does that, is that happening? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> what makes you think you could? <laughs> and here's why. Because it's different for everybody. It's different for everybody. And what you need to do is be affectionate toward one another and communicate your needs to one another and then mutually come to an agreement about how often that should happen but keeping in mind that this word of god does say don't deprive one another don't deprive one another except for an agreed upon time and that time is for prayer and fasting what that means is, honey, what, rather let me say it this way. What that doesn't mean is, honey, I don't feel like it tonight because I'm fasting and praying. That's not an excuse. That's not a, that's not, that's not a way you can back out of this, okay? It's an agreed upon set time set beforehand to say, hey, next week or next month or next whatever, Let's set aside some time. We're trying to decide if we should change careers. We're trying to decide if we should move. We're trying to seek the will of God. We're trying to let's set some time aside where we will abstain from the physical and we will fast and pray. And I would suggest that would be together, not one of you fasting and praying, but as a couple together fasting and praying. And, and that time has an ending time as well, a set time to say after that, you come back together. Well, why? For what he says. Because you're, we, you, we are weak-willed so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He is well aware that should you go without what you are accustomed to in the, in the union of, of marriage, that your, as we sing in the, in the, in the, in the song, Come Thou Fount, you are prone to wander. 
Whether you do it in a, a physical way or even a mental way, both would be sin. So why go down that road? Rather come together so that Satan doesn't tempt you down that road is what he's saying. We good? All right. If you have specific questions, um, I'll do my best to answer them. I know it's a touchy subject, but the Bible talks about it. And so I want to be open and honest. I want to teach the Word of God. And so we'll, we'll, we'll work our way through it. He says in verse 6, But I say this is a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I am myself. And there it is. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And so Paul is saying, hey, I'm single, but I recognize that I am able to be single because it's a gift from God and that not everyone is wired for that. And I believe it does take a special wiring. And here's why it says in verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain that way, remain even as I am, but... If they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so he's saying, God, if God intends you to remain single, you will be able to do that without lusting. And if it's something that you struggle with, you are intended to be married. That's my understanding of that. Now that doesn't mean that even those that are even Paul or, or those that are called to be single might not be tempted in one way or another now and again, but it, it is a, a general statement to say it's not something that you're going to con continually be tripping over, continually be falling over. It is an area that you would, you would say of yourself that you have victory in. It is better to marry than burn with passion. And what's interesting about that, as Paul says that, what, think about what I said about the Jewish culture and the culture that he came from. He's saying it's okay for people to be single. He's even saying it's a good thing for people in Christ to be single. But yet he's coming from a culture that would say if you're not married by the age of 20, you're in sin. And so he, he's, he's thinking about these things, but he's saying, no, actually in Christianity, if you're able to walk without the, the burning of, of lust, then being single is a good thing. And he's going to give some practical reasons as to why as we go on in the chapter. It makes a lot of sense, but not everybody is gifted with that. We need to make sure we understand that. Verse 10, now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. Now speaking to married couples, Christian married couples, you're not to depart from your husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be re reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. And so what he's saying, he's pretty much summing up what Christ had said about marriage in Matthew chapter 19, that you don't you don't divorce. And then the, the Pharisees asked Jesus, well, then why did Moses issue the, the certificate of divorce? And he, Jesus says, because of your weak hearts, because of, uh, of your foolishness, because of your, your wicked ways, Moses permitted divorce, but it's not something that, that God 
smiles upon. It says, as a Christian, but even if she does depart in verse 11, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So what does that mean if you're sitting here tonight and you're like, well, I've got divorce in my past. I've been there. I've done that. Once or twice or three or ten times. I I don't know. Am I in sin for that? And the, the answer would be, the blood of Jesus covers it. And God has you where you are now. So walk in that. So walk faithfully in that. And don't worry about trying to correct the past. Live where, you, where he has you now. And he's going to say that later in the chapter. Um, more on that if you're interested in Matthew chapter 19, what Jesus says. Now he says in verse 12, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Now this is interesting and I want to quantify or qualify this statement because it sounds like he's saying, hey, this isn't, this statement doesn't belong in the Bible because he's saying, not the Lord says this. And what he's talking about is the relationship between a believing spouse and a non-believing spouse should they then divorce. And what he's going to say now is, what he, or rather, he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. So does that mean it doesn't belong in the Bible? And the answer is no. What he's saying is, Jesus never taught on this subject specifically, but I will say this. And God, knowing that he would say it, still ordained him to be an author of the Holy Scriptures. So it is still authorized by God. Yet he's saying when he says the Lord does not say this, he's speaking of Jesus in his earthly ministry didn't specifically talk on this subject. And what he says is if any brother has a wife who does not believe, so we have a, 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 a mixed marriage, if you would, not racially, but mixed, uh, un, uh, yoked, uh, or unevenly yoked rather between a, a believer and a non-believer, if she's willing to live with him, let him, let him not divorce her. And so if the uh, wife is not believing and the husband is, if, if they are still willing to live, if she's still willing to live with him, let it be so. Don't, don't leave that situation. And he says the same and vice versa. Uh, verse 13, and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. And so he's dealing with a specific situation, probably from the direct question to say, hey, I've got a situation. I'm a believer. I became a Christian, whatever, X many years ago. I've been living with my wife. She refuses to accept the Lord. She refuses to live for God. I've witnessed to her. I've, I've told her about the, you know, and, and she just doesn't want anything to do with it. Do I divorce her? And Paul's saying, if she's willing to live with you, no. No, but if that unbelieving person finally says, I've had enough, I can't take any more of your evangelism, I'm out of here, then okay, you let that person go. And he says, because we are to be, we are called to peace, it says at the end of verse 15. 
If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. It isn't good to note here in verse 14 where it says, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. That sanctification doesn't mean saved. It, it does, it's not that as, if I'm a believer and my spouse is not, that, that, that my wife is not then saved because I am. You don't get saved by you know, being hooked together in marriage. Each man is responsible to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. Each person is. And so uh, it's not that that sanctification or that sanctified means saved there, but the situation is unique in that you have, you have holiness inside your house as an unbeliever because your spouse is there. And so you have a unique opportunity to see God working up close and personal in your marriage. And so that's what he means by sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. It means that they have a unique circumstance there. Um, and verse 16 would say, and this is the point, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Here's the thought. It, you stay together. Try to stay together, even with an unbelieving spouse, because the day might come when they repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ, and then you have a, a holy matrimony. So, so don't leave if, if at all possible. Stick with it because that day may come and it may be difficult until that day comes, but it may come. And so continue to press on in that in hopes that your spouse would be saved. It echoes the thoughts of Peter's writing in first Peter chapter three. Encourage you guys to read that as well. So we have Matt, um, sorry, Matthew 19, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, all dealing with marriage and, and, and gives a strong biblical foundation for, for the way we're to act in marriage, okay? And now he's going to generalize for the rest of the chapter and just to say, whatever your situation, wherever you are, like I said, if you came from divorce, if you... He's going to say if you're a slave, if you're circumcised, if you're uncircumcised, wherever you are, wherever God has you now, stick with it. For As long as it's not a situation that's leading you into sin, as if, as if you were single but continued to lust, burn with lust, stick with it. Stick with it, okay? Um, verse 17, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches, <clears throat> was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. So becoming saved doesn't mean that your life circumstances must change. Doesn't mean, hey, do I give up divorce? Do I or, and divorce my wife do, for in the in the pursuit of holiness? Do I leave my fleshly lusts and and or desires behind and 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 leave everything? No, stay in the in the circumstance that you were saved in is what he says. Now that doesn't mean that when you're saved that not or that nothing is to change. Sometimes it will. You need to pull out of sin. You need to walk away from sin. But that doesn't mean all of your life circumstances need to change. 21, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. 
But, uh, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Oh, that's a, I love that little twist there, but he's saying, even as a slave, uh, and slavery a little bit different than what we remember from our history classes, more of a, a working condition in those days. You worked in people's households as servants, and here translated slaves, but he's saying, and it was for contracted time. He's saying, if that's where you are, then okay, but if you can be made free, go for it. And he's going to say, you know, even if you are a slave and in a situation that you can't get out of and, and, and bonded to somebody in that way, you're, the Lord set you free. You're still freed, man, even though Paul would say he was a free man, even though he was in chains. But he also says, likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. And that, that echoes back to Romans chapter 1. It's the idea of being a bondservant. It's a servant by choice. We are, we, yes, we are free from the law of sin and death, but we subject ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. And so in that we become slaves to him is what it says in Romans 1. And he says it again in verse 23, second time he said this, you're bought at a price. You're bought at a price. He's reminding us of what Jesus has done. Do not become slaves of men. As um, I don't know how much you're into sports or anything like that. I enjoy, enjoy sports. And, but as we're looking at different things, pro athletes, let's say, and I, don't, I can't think of a... Let's pick one. Tom Brady, quarterback for the Patriots. The uh, the Kraft family, those that own the Patriots, sit down across the table from Tom Brady and they write him a contract. And they say, over the next three years, we're going to pay you $27, $28, 40000000 million, whatever it is. ton of money. Now, think about it from the Kraft's perspective we are investing in this person $40 million. Don't you think then the crafts are going to do everything that they can to protect their investment, right? And so they do. They offer Tom Brady all the training facilities that he can handle. Everything that if he wants physical therapy, he can have it every day of the week. He can have massages. He can, oh, you need to rest your arm. We'll be happy to buy the ice for you. And, and you want, you need psychological help. We have a psychiatrist on staff. You can come sit down and talk with him. You need counseling. No problem. You got that. Oh, you were out late on Friday night and you got a little wasted and you need a driver to come pick you up. Wherever you are in the world, we'll get you a driver. The NFL does that for their, their, their players. Don't want them drunk driving. They will put things in their contract. Ben Roethlisberger, the, pick, the, the, the quarterback for the Pittsburgh Steelers, after he had his motorcycle accident, his new contract says he's not allowed to ride motorcycles anymore because he needs to be careful. They protect their investment. So here's the point. If a man, if a company, if a, a, a group of people is going to do, go to that extent to protect a person, to protect their investment... How much more does Christ, because he bought you with his blood, how much more does he invest in or protect his investment? 
And so he gives us these practicalities. He gives us these things. He reminds us, hey, you're bought with a price and you are under the, the authority and the, and the protection of Christ. So don't become slaves of men is what he says in verse 23. Don't subject yourself to this foolishness. Verse 24 would say, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. And now he's going to speak specifically to those that are single. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. So he's reminding them, hey, I'm the one that established the church. I have the apostolic authority to make this judgment. I've been proven trustworthy by the Lord's mercy. I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. He says in this present distress. What's he talking about? Well, those in the Corinthian church, as were all the churches in that day and age, experiencing outside affliction. There, there were those rising up in this day now to come against the, the, the church. Nero is getting ready to come on the scene. Nero, the one that decided to use Christians as candles in his garden, and he dipped them in tar and let the, set them on fire so that he could ride around naked in his chariot. He burned Christians to see in the evening. Okay, that's happening while Paul is writing these letters. And so he's saying, because of this present distress, because of the situation going on, maybe we shouldn't be so concerned about whether or not I need to get in or out of a marriage. Why don't you just stay the way you are? Hey, Jesus is coming back soon. That's what Paul believed. And so uh, he believed it could happen at any day. But because of these outside afflictions, maybe just stay the way it is. You are. But he he now qualifies that even if you do marry, you've not sinned. Marriage is a good thing, he's going to say. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. Nevertheless, such will you have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Marriage is a good thing. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. Hey, Jesus is coming back. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. May I remind you, I'm sure you experience it enough on your own. Life is a vapor is what the scriptures say. And in a moment, you have a baby and then she's 13 and listening to these messages. It just, it happens that quickly. And I, and, and, but, and on top of that, as quickly as life does go by, just general life, on top of that, there's a day coming like a thief in the night when Christ will return. And so Paul is just saying, maybe just keep things the way it is but marriage is a good thing. Verse 32, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And so here's some of the reasons as to why you might stay single. 
because you can care for the things of the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. And so what he's saying is, in marriage, though it's a good thing, it's not a bad thing, and Paul's not saying get rid of marriage, he's saying in marriage, you have a second set of priorities built into your life. Yes, we are to honor God, and we are to please God, and he is to be our number one, our priority. But when you put on the ring, you also then have the priority to care for and to give your wife or your spouse affection. And so you have the cares of this world to make sure that you are providing for your family, to make sure that they have the, what they need, to make sure that you're giving them a, a godly household. You have those, those concerns, whereas those who are single simply don't. They have to care for themselves. And so their focus on the things of the Lord is more, more direct. Because as a married person, you have these second priorities as well. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And so I'm saying, this is, this is not a restriction. I'm not putting a leash on you, but it's for your benefit. And he's, he's, he's trying to change their thinking about singleness. And that's a good thing, I think. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward a virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. He's saying, if God has purposed you to remain single, you will have power with your over your own will, you will have no necessity, and you do well to stay a virgin. But if, if you decide to marry, that's okay too. So then, he who gives in marriage does well, but he who does not give in, her in marriage does better. He's saying both are good. And, and, and the question here would be, as we look at this chapter, and I know we've got the gamut here. I know we have single people that have never been married. I know that we have uh, widows and, and widowers. I know that we have married people. I know we have divorced people. I know we've got everybody here. I know that we have mixed marriages, and so, meaning saved and unsaved. The question then, as he's talking through all of this, is to say, what has God called you to? Are, are you supposed to be single the rest of your life? Well, Figure it out. Are you burning with lust on a regular basis? Then the answer is no. No, you're not called to that. Go seek a spouse. If you're married, stay in that marriage and, dis and, and display your affection for your spouse. What has the Lord called you to? And then he finishes the chapter. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So he's saying, you may not word, murder your husband so that you can be married to who you want to, because it says only in the Lord, and the Lord does not look on murder as a good thing. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So, in all of this, seek 
holiness is what he's saying. Set your mind and your affection on the Lord and pursue him with all of your heart. If you're married, fulfill your marital privileges. If you're single, pursue God with all of your heart. Seek holiness in either situation. If you're married, remember God joined you. Let no man put asunder is what we say in the weddings. Let no man separate what God has joined. If you're single, good. If you can live that way, go for it. If not, find a spouse. That's pretty much it. That's chapter 7. I'm glad we're done. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I'm grateful for your word that does give us direction even in the subjects that are hard to talk about from a pulpit. But I am grateful for the gift that you've given me in my wife. I'm grateful for the gift of marriage. And that I don't have to walk this world alone because I know I can't do it. And I pray for all of us, God, that no matter what our circumstances are right now, that we wouldn't be concerned with the past and those mistakes that we've made because you have forgiven them by the blood of Jesus. And that we wouldn't be concerned with the future as to whether we'll be married or not. God, that we would live in today and that we would give you it all. That we would honor and glorify you where you have us today. Lord, you hold our future. You've forgiven our past. And so we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.